0: We're going to talk a little bit today about better. Um, By the time we get over to our study in the book of Hebrews, the word better is going to really come uh, in play. Now, some of you have been in advertising kind of business, or maybe you've marketed your business uh, to some degree. Um, Have you ever been like me? Have you ever discovered a a, a deal where newer is not necessarily better? Okay? Okay. I ran into uh, Larry Harris the other day, and he was driving his father's 1965 Chevrolet pickup. You can't buy one today like that. Newer is not really better. Now, I don't know what Larry would say to you about that, but I love that truck. Phil, I love your 67, man. Uh, Newer couldn't be better than that. Uh, It's just not. And I'm so happy you hung on to it. Uh, You've had it how many years? Okay. I thought that may may have been what you went to driver's ed in. I didn't know, you know. Um, But newer is just not necessarily better. Um, We're going to talk, though, today about something that is newer and is also better. Um, Now, by the way, Joe, when I was Dealing with that question, I thought about your 1982 Mercedes-Benz convertible that he just shipped to Europe. I'm thinking, what in the world? But, uh, well, but, wanted well, your son won. I get that. I get that. But, but that car was perfect, oh, yeah. even though 30 something years old. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. You know, you know. Okay. Why am I going with cars? Okay. It's my deal. All right. Now, um, so we're going to talk about Israel's greatest moment in its history was the original Passover, and they celebrated it with an annual feast every year. Passover was especially notable because it really began the nation. Uh, The idea of bringing Israel out of bondage in Egypt um, kind of created them as a people and as a nation, it was their July 4th. Now, so as they celebrated that annual feast, it became customary for the, whoever the host was at the feast to introduce the epic story of Israel's deliverance. They told the story as they. Um, celebrated the Passover, but the host would typically turn to the family and say, why is this night different from all other nights? And that would give them an opportunity to tell the story. Really, really important. We're going to study for a few minutes here today the story of Jesus eating the final Passover meal with his disciples before his death. It's a turning point in the gospel story. Peter has confessed Jesus as Messiah in Mark 8, and from that point on, Jesus begins to warn his disciples of his coming death and resurrection, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. For them, Christ must uh, triumph militarily over the Gentile nations, certainly over the Romans, and uh, um, when he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, they thought, all right, here we go. He's ready to claim his kingdom. But the Passover that followed just three days after that must have been tinged with that expectation. But they recognized pretty soon, because he told them so, that this is a much different kingdom than they uh, anticipated. Um, And so he's going to talk about at that last Passover, he's going to talk about a new promise is needed. And he's going to give them that promise and he's going to make good on it. Let's read, if we can. Uh, John, can I get you to read for us today? Let's, If you would read that whole 17 through 25, so nine verses, I think, uh, from Mark 14, uh, that will tell us kind of the story of that first Last Supper. When evening came, Jesus arrived. In- <clears throat>
1: I will not drink again of the fruit
0: of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Okay. A very poignant scene, and it cannot be more important to you and me. By the way, isn't it wonderful that we get to talk about this today on Communion Sunday at Crossings? I, um, I, that might be something, by, by the way, to mark on your calendar. The first Sunday of every month, um, we celebrate Holy Communion here. And that might be a thing to plan your vacations around. You know, I'm, um, uh, I I just think it's that important. There are other times we get to experience that through the year, but if, we can pretty well be assured here that we're going to celebrate Holy Communion at least the first Sunday of the month. Now, this group that was gathered, uh, Mark tells us that it was the original 12. This was the original 12. No more, no less. Um, uh, it's kind of interesting here. Um, uh Only those, only the original 12, I I put a a reference there where you can read uh, from chapter 3 who they all all were. Um, But this is going to be a symbol of the 12 tribes being gathered to be re-included. You know, uh, uh, the two southern tribes had become kind of Judah, from which we get the word Jew that... That uh, you see a lot in the New Testaments, but it's like what happened to the other ten. Well, this idea is kind of the repatriation, the re-inclusion of all twelve of the tribes, and Jesus makes that symbol pretty plain here in in uh, in including all twelve of his disciples and only them uh, as they come to the table for the initiation of this new covenant. Now, I want to hand out a couple of verses for us to read because they're going to be important to us. Um, somebody in just a minute go to 1015. Who will do that? Ten, Get it, Dan? Mark 1015. Okay. And then John 1326. Who will get that one? Thank you, Cindy. Um, this one's a little trickier. Leviticus 4.7. Oh, oh, boy, you're... You're up for it, Brad. Okay. Uh, and then 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. Thank you, Karen. Okay. We'll, we'll get to those in a minute, but that's going to help us get through. Now, this is as, as he gathers them by verse 18, he makes a very solemn proclamation. Now, read ten fifteen. Dan, is that one yours? Uh-huh. Read that one because there's a, there's a common phrase or word or expression that he uses here. Okay, there are several of these in, in the New Testament when Jesus is talking, certainly in the Gospel of Mark. But when he begins a sentence with truly, you know this is going to be something pretty solemn. The word truly that's used here in this verse and in 1015 that Dan wrote, read uh, is the word, uh, same word translated uh, from uh, the Hebrew in the Old Testament is amen. It, isn't that interesting? It, it and it's kind of hard to make the connection with what it means. But what we, you and I need to kind of get connected with here a little bit is that it's when he begins a statement with truly, I better pay attention. There's a warning coming. There's a promise coming. Um, now, if you read verse 18 appropriately, knowing what's getting ready to come, you realize that what happened when Jesus was arrested in the garden with, with Judas identifying him, was no accident. This was no surprise to Jesus. And I want you to think about here, as you read verse 18, and as we, we look at the rest of the story today, uh, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. I, I want you to recognize who is in control. Any of us, if we knew that we were going to be betrayed, would figure something else out, we'd boogie out of there some way, or we'd say, uh, I don't want to see you get out of here. Judas was included in most of the complete evening. He's still in the scene right here. Now, John is going to identify Judas as being the one who betrayed him. Jesus doesn't even say it yet, and we're going to see what he does with that. In verse 19, it becomes pretty scandalous to them when he says what he says in verse 18. And they begin to be grieved. They're, they're stricken with grief. And they say to him one by one, what? Surely not. Yeah, surely it's not me. Uh, it's interesting here. They all see themselves as the faithful one. They all see themselves as the one who is faithful. And so the implied answer to every one of their questions is, no, it's not me. Is it me? Is it me? And the implied answer to that is, surely not me. In fact, that's pretty well uh, translated that way in our modern our modern Bible, certainly the NIV, even the New American Standard has. Surely not I. The answer to the question is implied in the way it's asked. It's not me, is it? No, surely not me. Okay, so that's what they're asking. And when he answers them in verse 20, it leaves every one of them uncertain. leaves them all uncertain. Because what's his answer? It's the one with, with whom I dip my bread in the cup. Who dips his bread in the cup. They'd all done that. All 12 of them had done that. Okay, so... It's like, oh, wait a minute. I did that. Is it I? Uh, it's real interesting. He doesn't let them off the hook here. It, his answer leaves them all kind of, kind of um, uncertain. Did I give somebody John thirteen twenty six? Thank you, Cindy, because he's going to give us a little more detail here. So in John's accounting of this scene, Jesus ends the intrigue right after the question. Hands the bowl to Judas and, oh, okay. Interesting, the the difference in the way. Was it a, a bowl of olive oil or was it wine? Wine. Yep, yep. Part of the ritual, part of the ritual, yep. Okay, now, I think that's right, Dan. I'll research that. I think that's right. Um, you and I are kind of accustomed these days. You go to an Italian restaurant and you're dipping into olive oil. Uh, in the South, it's butter. Yeah. <laughs> but here, I th- because he says, he uses the same phrase, the cup, I think it might have been uh, a little bowl or a cup of wine. I'll find out, okay? Now, now he leaves them here by saying that the climax of his life is near. He's going to call himself the son of man. What does that mean? Well, 80 times or more in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. He likes that term for himself. Now, I've been told this for years and years and years, that that was his attempt to identify with you and me as a human. That's only partially true. He's also, even more importantly, I believe at least, identifying with the uh, term Son of Man in Daniel 7, a highly um, predictive messianic passage of Scripture in Daniel 7, referring to the coming Son of Man, that when he said it, the ones in the room would understand what his claim would be. He was the coming one, he was the Messiah. And so he identifies himself here as the son of man. And um, he, uh, he says here, uh, this is getting ready to happen. I've, he's kind of already told them some of that. But now they're kept for the son of man is to go just as it's written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Judas will not get off the hook here. He's got culpability here. He's got responsibility in this. But I began to think this week. It's interesting. Not yet, but most of them, if not all of them, betrayed him to some degree in the next 24 hours or so. This is a hard question. I I don't know the answer to this. Well, I think I do. Is Peter's betrayal any better? more benign than Judas. I don't know, guys. What's the difference then? The difference is Peter's repentance. Could Judas have repented? I believe he could have. Instead, he took his own life. Isn't isn't that a, a huge difference in this? You could really argue that all of the 12 betrayed him in some way. You could argue that. They had all dipped their bread in the cup. Now, just leave that in the, in the back of your brain a little bit here, as we go through this. Um, um, the end of his life is coming. He's telling them that now. Jesus serves, beginning of verse twenty-two, as the Passover host. By the way, the, what the climax of his life is near. So is what goes in that blank. I don't know if I gave that to you or not. Um, Jesus serves here as the Passover host, and this is what the Passover host does. It begins by taking bread, breaking it, distributing it. Does that sound familiar to you? sounds like what we do in communion in churches, doesn't it? Um, the, the bread is taken, it's broken, and, it's, it, and it is given. Um, but in this verse, he defines bread. He defines the Last Supper bread. How does he define it? This is my body. Don't you know there had to be at least one or two of these guys that gasped in them? <gasps> what? By the way, if you're reading John 6, it'll make you even uh, more pensive about this whole thing. Um, he defines the bread. The bread is not just part of the ritual. The bread is going to become the offering, the offering for sin. And he's going to kind of deal with that um, uh, as he leads them through this whole thing. Um, Now, uh, the host then, in verse 23, Jesus, the host at this point, also offers them the cup, okay, Um, and... The fruit of the vine is part of a blessing from the Passover feast. It always represents joy. and uh, But he's going to identify the cup differently. All right? There are a couple of different ways he's going to identify the cup differently. Here, how does he identify the cup? This is my blood. Wow. Broken body, shed blood. He's identifying these two different things. Uh, who's got 1038? Did I give somebody 1038? Let's go to it, okay? Just turn back a couple of pages. In 1038, he's going to identify it even differently. He's going to say, Jesus said to them, you, don't know, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I, be, uh, which I am to be baptized? The idea there is part of the cup is what he's about to face. The cup of, uh, uh, of suffering in particular here. And so he's going to say that this cup in verse 24 is to be, interestingly, it's to be taken by them. This is my blood of the covenant. But then he says, this blood, this cup is going to be poured out. Now, here's the reference. Okay, who, who was, uh, Brad, it was you that was brave enough to go to Leviticus? Read verse 7. That's just gross. A bowl of bull's blood offered for a sacrifice for sin. They they put it on their thumbs, they put it on the horns of the altar, and then they pour it out in front of the altar. That's just nasty. (laughs) Symbolic. Do you recognize Jesus says here, my blood is getting ready to be poured out. The cup is going to be drained drink it, he says. Wow. Wow. Uh, there couldn't be more symbolism here. Uh, listen, my question here is, did Peter get this? Yet, yeah, the answer is yes. Um, who went to First Peter uh, 1, 18 and 19? Is that you, Karen? Okay, Peter kind of caught it. Maybe he didn't get it that night. But later on, reflecting on this, as he's writing his letter, he says, this is the blood of the precious Lamb of God. I mean, he kind of gets it. The blood being poured out. So Jesus reserves the right here to redefine the Passover, and he gives it a new meaning. And Peter actually did get it this time. So he's going to begin verse 25 with kind of a, the summary of where we'll be, at least, before we go over to Hebrews. He's going to give, uh, as part of this summary, that, that preface word, truly again, that we talked about a little bit ago, which means this is a big deal. And he says, we're not going to do this again until we, we celebrate this together in the kingdom of God, in my kingdom, he said. So this will be truly the last supper according to what he says there. Now, take a trip to the right. Let's go to Hebrews 8, which the little book of Hebrews is so good to help us with the meaning of these things that we read about in the Gospels. It it frames them for us in such a wonderful, wonderful way. So we're going to begin with verse 6. John, can I come back to you to read 6 through 12?
1: I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, or a man his brother, say, know the Lord, because they will all know
0: him. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins in the, Lord. the book of Hebrews is written... To a group of Jewish Christians. And the why of, of the writer of Hebrews writing it is because their great temptation is to become once again Jewish, not Jewish believers in Christ. Their great temptation, and actually their great protection in uh, the uh, political environment of the day was they could legally be Jewish and not be in any kind of trouble, but not so if they're Christian. And so their great temptation is to take what they have said they believed, the Holy Spirit that they've experienced, and just say, "Uh, never mind. I want to go back to my heritage. And so the warnings here and, and the teaching here is to say, Remember that there is something better in play, a better promise. The word better is a key word. Superior is a key word. So this new promise, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, is better or superior to the old one. How? Well, there are a lot of ways how. But I begin to think this week about the truth that in this new promise that Jesus initiates and talks about in the Last Supper um, on the night before uh, he was uh, crucified. Jesus is going to say, the book of Hebrews is going to reiterate, that Jesus himself was both the sacrificer, the priest, okay, the high priest who sacrificed the body and the blood. But he was not only the sacrificer, but he was the sacrifice. I don't mean to, to demean that thought at all. In fact, I hope it lodges here. He was not just the one who offers the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice himself. Blood and body. So doesn't it make sense then that that promise, that covenant, if you want to use the older word, is superior to the old one? He was a spotless sacrifice offering himself. So in verse 7, it begins to talk about the new promise is superior to the old. Now, what, what you and I have got to be really careful of here is God didn't make any mistakes in giving the Old Testament. God didn't make any mistakes. Uh, it's, it's the inspired word of God. When, when, um, when Paul says to Timothy, for the word of God is God-breathed, God he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been put together yet. So we know that it's effective and good, God made no mistakes in the first promise, which you and I call the Old Testament. But I'm going to tell you what the book of Hebrews is telling us and what Jesus is telling us is that um, it couldn't rescue people permanently from sin. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Therefore say, Thus saith the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come here, they will remove all its detestable things and its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart, put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. It wasn't until this new promise, this new covenant, that a heart could really be changed from hard, stone-like, to soft and pliable in flesh. It's pretty important, okay? Now, so the Hebrew's writer, beginning in, in verse 10 or so, begins to quote the prophet the prophet Jeremiah, a huge watershed passage, kind of like the Ezekiel passage was, from, um, from the Old Testament, from, um, from Jeremiah 31. And he's going to say, uh, there is a promise here. What is that promise? Is it better? Now, um, for this is the covenant I will make with, those with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God. I I read this week that in the early 1990s, there was a release of a pocket-sized resource called the U.S. Constitution and fascinating facts about it in the early 1990s. Booklet became a bestseller in the weeks preceding the 2016 U.S. election. The demand for pocket-sized copies of the Constitution was so great that over 100,000 free copies were distributed by a nonprofit organization. Maybe you know about that organization. People wanted to read the Constitution for themselves. They wanted to be. They wanted it pocket-sized so they could carry it with them. I can't really imagine that. I can't imagine watching, uh, watching either Fox News or CNN and saying, Wait, wait a minute. Let me check that out. I, But evidently, lots and lots of people did that. What's the difference in the new covenant of Jesus to having the Old Testament available? Jeremiah says, no longer will it be written on tablets of stone. I'm going to carve it into your heart. I'm going to emblazon it into your mind so that it's with you all the time. You ever been involved in something and maybe you hear a... Okay, sorry. Maybe you hear a TV preacher, and you think uh, there's something not quite right about that. You ever been there? Or maybe the History Channel, and you think not. No, okay. And you think I pick on Ellie about watching the History Channel, and you think, wait a minute, that's not right, is it? Do you know what that is? That's the Word of God in your heart. How important is it that we read this book for ourselves? But with the Holy Spirit alive and active inside us, when something that's kind of a half a bubble off goes through my ears, it's the Holy Spirit who says, now hang on just a minute, pal. You better go back and read this for yourself, but this doesn't quite add up. The Word of God What God values has been written in my my heart. You bet it's better. And so, he's going to say here in verse 11, still quoting from, from the prophet Jeremiah, they will not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. This was scandalous in their day because the Bible, uh, the um, the covenant had been this promise had been offered to a group of people, to a family. Family was all important. And the Hebrews writer is going to say, you know what? You can receive the gospel regardless of your family background. Whether Marlene, you're from New York, or from Ardmore. Or Paul's Valley, Oklahoma. Because now, with this new promise, this new covenant, the issue is no longer one of race. It is an issue of grace. And what I do to, um, uh, to deal with that, to, to appropriate that in my life... All will know him, he said. And that, by the way, I'm, we're reading what's being quoted here in, in Hebrews 8, verse 11, is Old Testament. This is the prophet Jeremiah. This is um, the gospel is now being offered to all, and it's that upon which we base our salvation and our eternal destiny. So by verse 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The sin of all humanity as its answer here. Now, I got a couple of minutes here to finish this up. What I would say to you, I read this this week and I, I kind of noodled it for quite a while, but um, in church today, you'll be able to kind of uh, uh, enact this or, or act it out. I believe that the Lord's Supper defines us as Christians. It couldn't be more important. That this new covenant that Jesus promised in the upper room and that the book of Hebrews kind of helps us to get our brains around, defines us, the the shed blood and the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ makes me who I am in Christ. Okay. Now, in the 1980s, Ron and I were in Eastern Kentucky. The two big employers in, in the city that we lived, small city we lived, one was a refinery uh, and, and uh, the headquarters for Ashland Oil Incorporated. They're no longer. But in those days, that was one of the big employers there. The other big employer, actually a bigger employer, was a, was a steel mill, Armco Steel, uh, an American company but if you remember the history of, of the mid-'80s in particular, uh, the American steel industry took a huge hit, and a lot of those jobs went away. And I had a lot of young men that I was trying to uh, disciple in those days who uh, uh, what made it a little easier to disciple them was uh, they weren't working. So we had a lot of time. Uh, by the way, I did some discipleship on the golf course. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. All right. Is that all right? Okay. One of the things these guys told me, you're right. His name is brought up a lot on the golf course in the wrong way. Uh, one of these things these, these guys told me is that a common practice for uh, these union laborers was if one of them bought, bought a car, another one would probably co-sign for it. The, the legal term is a guarantor. He would be a guarantor for that loan. And I had guys who were having to take odd jobs to pay somebody else's car payment. That just seems ridiculous to me. And I I imagine even as you hear me tell the story, it turns your stomach a little bit. Let's face it. We as human beings have a dismal credit rating with God. We haven't really done it very well. And if we look at our own spiritual finances, we would, it would yield the inevitable conclusion that we got liabilities that we can never repay. But guess what? Jesus is my guarantor. He takes the sin debt of my life. His very body and blood was to clear that sin debt, making a relationship with God possible. My guarantor has done what Old Testament animal sacrifices and ritual actions could never accomplish. Take my sin away for good. And give me a right to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and to live with him forever in heaven. It doesn't get much better than that. Okay. This week, take a little time, read Mark 15. That's where we're going to be next week. We're going to continue to talk about this promise, okay, this new covenant, this new plan. And uh, hopefully we'll we'll be able to understand it. Have a great Sunday. Good to see you.